Well, good morning. I have Siri popping up on my iPad and everything, so I don't want that to happen. And she started talking in the middle of this. Good morning. My name is Pastor Steve. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is our, my privilege to continue this series of Psalms, our Songs of Jesus, um, as we're given uh, given those who are taking their kids back just a couple more minutes. Uh, this Psalm is very similar, a lot of the same themes as last week. And so my suggestion to Jamie was, is I'll just do a quick 10-minute homily, and then we'll play a video of a sermon from last week and be done. But uh, he didn't like that suggestion, so I, uh, I actually had to prepare a sermon this morning. So uh, this is just a short psalm. It is one of the shorter psalms. It is only three verses, but uh, I trust that uh, we will see that these are some excellent, excellent three verses for us, especially in, in the time uh, that we are in. Um, so there's more. Let's read this passage, um, then I will pray, and uh, we will get to work on the passage. It should be about 30 minutes or so. Uh, so here's Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, again we come before you in worship and in praise centered on your word. These words in this the short psalm written by your servant David. I pray that the, these words are an encouragement and instructive to us, Lord. I pray that you would have us to learn your truth from these words this morning. I pray that you would give me clarity as I, as I speak, call my own heart and my own mind. I know I, uh, I didn't do a very good job of fulfilling this psalm this week as I prepared. And I pray that you would just bless this time, Lord. I thank you for everyone that is here. And I thank you that we, we are, can gather together. Bless those who are teaching at Cornerstone Kids and, and Pebbles and taking care of a nursery. Give them a, a fruitful and sweet time this morning as well. And I pray. Amen. Now as we get started, I want to take a little trip through history. Starting in, a, in about the year 1980. June 1st of 1980 to be exact. Uh, in, on June the 1st, 1980, something important happened, something that I think has shaped the way the year 2020 and the year 2021 happened. And that was, on June the 1st, 1980, the Cable News Network, or CNN, which is the first 24-hour news network, was launched. So from that point, you had 24-hour news. After that, you have, now we have several different 24-hour news stations, from CNN to Fox News to MSNBC to, NBC, uh, to um, CNBC. You know, these, we have these 24-hour news cycles. We can watch the news for 24 hours a day. Why you'd want to, I don't know. Well, so that was 1980. So fast forward eight years, and TV was getting an update as far as how the news was presented, and radio got an update. With, uh, in the beginning of July of 1988, a fellow by the name of Rush Limbaugh started his show. And that revolutionized 
talk radio during the daytime. He had the main slot, noon to 3 p.m. I used to be a big Rush fan. I used to listen to Rush every single day. Um, so you have 1980 and then 1988. And then in the, in the, in the 90s, you had the internet really start to become a norm in, in households and families. I think we can, most of us can remember uh, picking up the phone and you hear the dial tone because somebody else is using the internet. Or you get your, your 500 free hours from AOL and it takes about 500 hours to download one picture. So, so you have the internet starting to take hold and some of your news sources are starting to move onto the internet. And then you have the early 2000s. And then the, the Wild West of the internet really started to take off. So in the early 2000s, you started having blogs pop up. Well, those blogs were, were all well and good. You had your SMS feeds and things like that. Or uh, it would be RSS feeds, actually, uh, started to pop up, and people could, could get their, um, follow their blogs that way. Well, then in the year 2004, a little website called Facebook was introduced. That was in March of 2004. Well, then about a year later, there was another site called YouTube in 2005. And these things are so new, but they're so ubiquitous. They're everywhere. So you have Facebook one year, then you have uh, YouTube the next year, and then the following year, 2006, you have Twitter. And in, after that, in the year 2007, something that has completely revolutionized the way we interact or don't interact with people, and the first iPhone came out in the year 2007. Now, news, the news feeds um, on these different sites and things were, you know, we had 24-hour news, you had 24-hour radio news, and now you have minute-by-minute -minute updates on your phone. And the idea is that the more informed you are, the better. We'll be able to make better decisions. We'll be able to, to know what's going on. We'll be able to understand our world better. Well, I have one question. Has all of this news made us more or less anxious? So you have a theory. I think we have an input problem. I think our brains only have but so much RAM. We can only take in so much information at once. Well, if, if we have this much news flooding into us all the time, I think we get overwhelmed. And we become restless. So now you have a pandemic in 2020 and 2021 where it's 24-hour, non-stop, the world is ending right now. We have tickers to show the number of deaths. I mean, how morbid are we? The tickers to show the number of hospitalizations and these types of things in the height of the, the pandemic last year. And we wonder why we're anxious. We wonder why we're restless. But this reminds me of a quote from St. Augustine, who was a late 4th, uh, early 5th century uh, theologian and philosopher, probably the most important theologian besides the Apostle Paul for the first thousand years of the church. And he said this in his confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest. And the so there's three three the main point as I as I see it in this passage that we're going to be looking through this morning is let God be God and hope in Him forevermore. So let God be God and hope in Him forevermore. And we have three three points that are, that come from this passage that I think will help us to understand how to let God be God and how to hope in Him forevermore. I've entitled this sermon, The Secret to Lasting Peace. 
because I'm stealing Jamie's sermon title from last week, which was The Secret to Good Sleep. So now we're going to try to give you the secret to lasting peace this morning. So there's three points that will guide us this morning. And the first point is found in verse 1. It's a three-verse passage, and so that lines up nicely. The first point is verse 1, and that is the posture of peace. And then in verse 2, we find the dependency of peace. And then in verse 3, we find the hope of peace. So we have the posture of peace, the dependency of peace, and the hope of peace. So point number one, verse one. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now this psalm, as you can see in the superscript in your Bibles, it says it is a song of ascent. Now there's, four, there's 15 songs of ascent, and there are Psalms 120 through 134. And these were psalms back in biblical times that the, the Jewish people would traditionally sing as they went up the mountain into the city. They're called the, either pilgrim songs or songs of the steps or the ascent psalms um, or songs of ascent. And they would, they would sing these as they prepared their hearts for worship, as they would ascend the mountain into Jerusalem. They would be singing these songs uh, as they were coming to the various festivals and holy days in the, on the Jewish calendar. Now, as we read this passage, I think, I think it could be easy to see how this would be a good passage in preparing ourselves for worship. You know, it's a great reminder. I mean, you have this first verse, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So I think it's a great reminder for us to check our hearts and check our minds and to reorient us and to right focus on who God is and who we are as we come into worship. That being said, it does seem odd, doesn't it, that the psalmist is bragging to God about how humble he is. It just doesn't seem like it lines up. He's basically saying, God, my heart is in the right place. My eyes are not too lofty. I don't worry about things outside of my control. But I think a passage like this prepares our hearts and reorients our minds for worship because it's opposite of how we normally are. It, it's a mirror that's held up in front of us and says, how you doing? I think if we were honest, I think, and we were to, to say this song, I think it would go something like this. Oh Lord, my heart is lifted up. My eyes are raised too high. I do occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Therefore, I cannot quiet and calm my soul. I am unlike a weaned child with its mother. My soul within me is not like a weaned child. I do not hope in the Lord at this time, nor in the future. You know, this, this ideal of this psalm is held up to us as a mirror, as I said, is showing us where our hearts have slipped, where our, our pride and lack of faith has brought us, and how we are trying to control and manipulate our world. This control is, in reality, a usurpation of, the, as, of God as the ruler of this world. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent tempts Eve, and he says, you will not surely die, but God knows that when you eat of it, you will become like him. That's been our pursuit as humans, to become like God. 
Now, I like the translation of, of, this passage, of this first verse in some other English translations better than the, in the ESV. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, says it this way, My heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. Nor do I involve myself with great matters or things too difficult for me. To me, I think that, that helps me understand the, the context and the, the idea of the verse a little bit better. You know, C.H. Spurgeon, the, the great um, English preacher, said of this psalm that it is one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. Because it's all about humility, humbling ourselves, recognizing the godness of God and the humanity, or our own humanity. In our pride of heart, we try to control life. We try to control our marriage. We try to control our spouse. We try to control our friendships and our jobs. We try to manipulate our world to get the result that we want. Our eyes are lifted up and haughty and proud. And it's, we're, because of that, we're drawn away from, from God to the status that we can gain or things. Causing us to either, A, look down on those who to whom we feel better than, or judge those and be jealous of those to whom we feel inferior. We demand answers of God for why He, didn't, why he let this thing happen or that, or why He didn't do things differently. We question God. We forget that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, which is in Deuteronomy 29, 29. There are right and good things for us to be concerned about, but those things have been revealed to us. They're not the secret things that God has kept from us for His own glory and for His own purpose. Now, many times, many times the, the whys of the happenings of this world are known to God and to God alone. Now, I think the book of Habakkuk is illustrative on this point. You know, in the, verse, in the first chapter... Habakkuk, the prophet, levels two scathing complaints against God. He says things like, Why aren't you taking care of your people? Why aren't you being just? Is your justice perverted? Where are you? He finishes his tantrum in verse 1 of chapter 2, where he says, I will take my stand at the watch post, and I will station myself in my tower. And look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Well, when you get in an argument with God, I think this went about as well as you'd expect. God does answer Habakkuk. And he reminded Habakkuk who God is and who Habakkuk is. Now, after Habakkuk answers, after God answers Habakkuk in chapter 2, Habakkuk responds in chapter 3. And this is how he finishes his response back to God. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those people who invade us. Notice the change in posture from the prophet. He starts out saying, let's see what God has to say for himself. And the God does say something for himself, and his response is, I will sit quietly. This is what it looks like when we humble our hearts and shift our gaze 
toward, from things too grand for us and occupy our minds with things that are suitable for us. This is recognizing the godness, the power, the sovereignty, the glory, the holiness of God, and that we are but mere humans. We're constantly trying to climb to the place of God when God, in the person of Jesus, has already come down to us. You know, last week, Jamie talked about how it is not just that Jesus is like us that is our comfort. It is the juxtaposition of the fact that Jesus is like us and not like us that is our comfort. He used the example of the firefighter. You know, if your house is on fire, the firefighter doesn't light his house on fire and then come and comfort you because he knows what it's like. No, you want somebody who's not like you, who's not concerned with their house on fire. They can show up with the right tools. Jesus is not like us, but he is. He's the God-man. We call this the hypostatic union. It's this joining of the godness of God and the humanity of humanity somehow, some way, and that's the person of Jesus. But this is what, this is what Acts 17.28 says. It says, in him, that is Jesus, we live and we move and we have our being. We learn in Colossians 1, 15 through 22, he says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all of creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in, all, for in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what are we worried about? This is who Christ is. This is the God-man who came down and dwelt with us, bearing our sin and shame and giving us his righteousness. So what are we worried about? You know, this change in posture, when we understand who God is and understand who we are, reorienting our mind and our heart and our eyes, this change in posture towards God is a recognition of our dependence on God, which leads us to our second point, the dependency of peace. Verse 2 says this, But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And when we humble ourselves before God and recognize our place before Him, that is when our soul can rest. You know, Augustine said, our soul is restless until we find rest in Him. This is when we find rest, when we recognize God being God. We let God be God, and then we hope in Him forevermore. Now, I love the imagery of a, a young child with its mother. You know, the peace and rest exhibited by a child when it is held and comforted by its mother is a great picture of our dependence on Christ. We live in the country, and we have a long driveway, and it's dark back there at night. And sometimes when we pull in at night, my kids are afraid to get out of the van because there's raccoons. Well, I mean, to them, they have good reason to be afraid of raccoons. They've seen what a raccoon will do to a chicken. 
we found the carcasses of leftover chickens into my kids. If I can do that to them, what is it going to do to me? So at those times, I like to tell my kids, don't worry. The raccoons are more scared of daddy than you are of the raccoons. You know, my kids know that they can depend on mom and dad to take care of them. When we really understand and act on the fact that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ, that's what we hear in the, in the uh, Great Commission. This is what Jesus says. And that all things work together for the good of those who love God in accordance with His purpose. This is when we, are, this is when we can assume the posture of rest in Christ. Like the physically helpless babe who sleeps in the peacefully in the arms of his mother. You know, as many of you know, my wife and I recently went through a miscarriage. And as we were going through the, the various appointments and uh, meeting with uh, doctors and doing that kind of thing for that, one of the first questions on the form that they had you fill out for this was uh, having to, something to do with, have you been dealing with anxiety over the past month? And over in, in conversation with the doctor, the topic came up and she mentioned that pretty much everyone answers yes to that question. And it's, it's, in some ways, it's easy to see why. You know, we're, we're, com- we're in the middle of or coming out of or uh, we'll never leave, as, depending on what news source you follow, a global pandemic. But add to that, the, we had the civil unrest, and at least our political system is pretty normal. So there's, there's unrest everywhere, and we're, we're, there's a lot of anxiousness You know, it's easy to feel anxious and ill at ease and wonder what the future holds. But as we've seen from the previous verse, what does this say about our posture towards God? Are we Habakkuk from chapter 1 or are we Habakkuk from chapter 2 or chapter 3? And this reminds me of Peter when Jesus was walking on the water. He had faith to step out of the boat. But then it says this, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him and saying, you of little faith, why do you doubt? So I asked myself, how often could Christ ask me the same? I may not be the best person to tell you what it looks like for a Christian to rest in the arms of Christ, but I can give you a picture of what it doesn't look like. It looks like me last night at 9.30 p.m. pacing back and forth in my shop, feeling like I'm about to have an anxiety attack because I'm staring at my, my iPad trying to finish a sermon and I have no idea what to say. I'm preaching a sermon, encouraging us to rest in God, and here I am trying in my own strength to figure it out. Well, that didn't go well. So that's why I was still working on it, 9.30 last night and later. Because I was trusting in my own self. But something that Jamie told me on, on Tuesday when we met together looking over this passage was running through my head. He said, these are God's people and he will feed his flock. It's, it's not up to me. Just stay faithful to the text. Just stay where God has you in this text. Preach the word and leave the rest to him. I realized I had been seeing preaching as more of a chore than, than a, a privilege. You know, it is a responsibility. As Matt said earlier, it's a weight to preach. But it is a privilege 
to be able to study the word and to be able to encourage you with the word. But my eyes were set on things that were too high. My mind was ill at ease because I was thinking of things that were too marvelous for me. How do I do it? You don't. You let God. Resting in Christ like a, newborn, like a newborn in the arms of his mother looks like a believer sharing the gospel even when they're terrified because they know it's not up to them, but it's the spirit that will do the work. It looks like an unprepared preacher getting up into the pulpit last minute because the snowstorm kept the preacher from being there. And he just takes a sermon and he reads it, not knowing that a young man by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon was sitting in the audience and was saved that day and went on to become what is known as the Prince of Preachers. It looks like a mother agonizing in prayer for her wayward son who is just obstinately pursuing the pleasures of this world who will then have the joy of seeing her son converted and become a bishop of the church. She had no idea what he would become, that his name was Augustine of Hippo, the greatest theologian of the first thousand years of the church. But his mother Monica prayed for him and rested in Christ. Her son was converted and the rest is history. Resting in Christ looks like a mom, a young mother resisting the urge to get sucked into the endless labyrinth of comparing herself and judging her identity as a mom by other people's curated social media posts. Because she knows that her identity is in Christ. Resting in, look, resting in Christ looks like a couple who month after month see that negative line appear. And yet they don't pull away from their church out of despair, but dive in deeper to community and discipleship because they know that's, where, that's God's means of grace in their lives. It looks like a retiree not checking out, but checking into his church and seeking ways to support and encourage the younger families in the church. It looks like when you go to an OB appointment, you can't find a heartbeat. That in your grief over the lost life, you say with Job, yet I will praise you. It looks like when life is going good and things are smooth, we don't take it for granted, but we use it as time for growing deeper in our knowledge of Christ so that we can encourage and disciple others. Resting in Christ does not mean that all of our problems go away. What it means is that when we do have problems, those problems don't obscure our view of Christ like Peter on the sea, but we view our problems through the prism of who Christ is, the God-man. If you're an unbeliever today, here today, I'm glad you're here. I have several questions for your consideration. And if you're an unbeliever, what are you trusting in? In what does your world hold together? In the passage that I just read, we not only found a, find a foundation for our peace as believers, but we, found the foundation, we find the foundation for the purpose of life. If you're an unbeliever, someone who, tr- who is not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, what are you depending on for your peace? If you're a hostile in mind, as we saw in Colossians, a God who is, if you are a hostile in mind to God, a God who has revealed himself in Scripture and in the person of his Son, 
Where does your purpose in life come from? Where does this leave you? You know, Frederick Nietzsche, who is a 19th century nihilistic philosopher, who is an ardently God-hater, he said this, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderer of all murderers? What was the holiest and mightiest of all the world has yet known has bled to death under our knives. But who will wipe the blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of the deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not simply become, not become God, simply to appear worthy of it? Now, without getting too much into the weeds, think about what Nietzsche, an avowed anti-Christian, is recognizing in this quote. I don't think he ever fully realized the implications of what he said in his philosophy, but he did recognize that without God, we must come up with everything on our own. We have to come up with our values, our morality, the sacred things, the purpose of life, the meaning of existence. We have to hold things together ourselves. We have to fill the vacuum left by the rejection of God. Must we become God simply to appear worthy of it? The answer is yes. But what a devastating answer that is. A God who is like us is just that. Just like us meaning merely human. And if that's the case, then we're on our own. So I ask, and what are you hoping? Yourself? Well, how is that working for you? What are you depending? Society or humanity in general? What in the past 120 years, not to mention time in memoriam, would ever give you any kind of confidence that we as humanity are up to the task? If you have questions or would like to talk about these things after the service, come find me or one of the other pastors or anyone who looks like a regular here, and we'd love to have a conversation. But this leads us into our final point, the hope of peace. Verse 3 says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now, I think verse 3 is such a great wrap-up to the passage. We've seen how we reorient our hearts and our minds. We've seen how this leads us into a, a, a position of dependence. And now he's just encouraging the people, hope in the Lord. O Israel, he starts out with. O people of God's own possession, hope in the Lord. Now, can you hear the love that, that, the, that David had for the people, for God's people? In the Old Testament parlance, Israel is another word for the people of God. You know, in Deuteronomy 6-7, Moses tells the people, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are in the earth. But this isn't because of anything in them, but because of God's love alone, which we see in the next verses. Deuteronomy 7-9 seven, seven says this, it is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore 
to your fathers. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generation. You know, Peter applies this same promise to believers in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not mercy, not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the promise first found in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy and reiterated by the Apostle Peter that is at the background of David's admonition to the people of God to hope in the Lord now and forevermore. Now this hope that we have in God is not like the hope that we have in things of earth. When David says hope in the Lord, that's categorically different than me saying, I hope it doesn't rain next Friday, or I hope my kids sleep through the night. The, hope, the confidence behind our hope is based off of the reliability of the object of our hope. God is infinitely reliable. My kids' sleeping patterns, not so much. So why, you may ask, am I belaboring the point of, oh, Israel and hope? These, these seem like possibly throwaway lines. Well, speaking frankly, I don't think that they are throwaway lines. I think that we oftentimes get distracted and have our heart and eyes and mind drawn away from the source of our confidence and object of our hope because we forget whose we are. I want us to always remember that we are not merely saved by grace from the fires of hell, but that we are His treasured possession, called according to His purpose. These are the realizations that are going to reorient our proud hearts, correct our gaze of our wandering eyes, and fix our minds on the glories of Christ. These are the realizations that are going to snuggle us deeper into the arms of Christ, no matter what the sea and the waves are doing around us. If this posture towards God, if our posture towards God is skewered, skewered, then our hope is in vain. If our eyes and our minds are fixed on temporal things, then our hopes will be temporal and fleeting. You know, dear church, God's treasured possession in Christ, hope in the one who eternally, who, hope, in the one, hope in the one and only eternally secure and never changing and perfect and holy Lord. Hope in Him now, hope in Him tomorrow, hope in Him forever. That hope is guaranteed to be realized beyond our wildest dreams. Remember whose you are. Set your heart, your mind, your affections on Him and be, cal- be calmed by a Savior who is at the same time powerful and gentle and lowly. Just a reminder as we close of that quote from Augustine. You have made us for Thyself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, so often our hearts are lifted up. Our eyes are raised too high. 
we do occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. Forgive us. Calm and quiet our souls. Forgive us for putting our hope in temporal realities and things rather than your eternal Son. Thank you for this little passage and then all, all that it has to teach us about humbling ourselves before you. Help us to not just read this short psalm quickly, but to take the long time that it takes to learn this psalm by habit of life. Amen.